As we begin a new year in our prayer meetings, I think fall in many ways is a good time to, to kind of think again about foundational truths as Christians. And I actually intend this year uh, to begin a study, really thinking about the biblical foundations, working through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. There's so many uh, aspects in that, uh, in those chapters that, that really affect a lot of the rest of what scripture has to say. And in many ways, uh, addresses a lot of confusion within, uh, our, our culture and society today. But before we get into that study, I thought it might be helpful to, to stay, take a step back before we start thinking about biblical foundations and think, why even care about biblical foundations? Why should we even study the Bible? And so that's what, Lord willing, we'll be looking at uh, the next three weeks in some ways, beginning tonight with the question, why should we study the Bible? Well, what is the Bible? What is this thing that we're studying, and why should we care about studying it? So let's begin by even that phrase itself. Maybe you've heard that word your whole life. You never stop to think, what does Bible even mean? Well, it basically comes from a a word that that means book. And so it is, when we're saying the Bible, in a sense, we're saying it is the book. It is the book of books. There is no book like this book. We also sometimes call the Bible scripture, or we call it the word of God. When we call it scripture, that's really referring to writings. It's, it's God's word in written form. And God's word is pointing to the fact that it's God's revelation. It is God's message for us. This is what the Bible is. And where did the Bible come from? Well, we believe that the Bible is inspired. Some passages that, that point to that truth. Second Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is God breathed. That word God breathed is really what we're talking about. We're talking about inspired. Which is why I've heard it said before, inspired is probably the, a wrong word to use. Because inspired seems to, to be like breathe in. It's really more expired. But then we don't want to say the Bible is expired, so we don't use that term. So we say inspired, that's what works well. That's what people have always used. But really we're talking about is breathe out by God. He is its source. And we're not saying inspired in the sense of like, boy, that was some great insight. Again, this is pointing to the fact that God is its source, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2.13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The words themselves come from the Spirit. It's not just the Spirit kind of gave people a general sense, but the very words themselves are sourced in God. So inspiration means that every word of Scripture was breathed out by God. In other words, God is the ultimate source of everything in the Bible. Now, how did this work? I don't think the Bible clearly indicates how inspiration was accomplished. Sometimes it does. Sometimes God says, write this down. And then he gives them the exact words to write down. So how did it work? Well, they heard what God said and they wrote it down. But other times it seemed to to work in other ways. How did it work? Well, the Holy Spirit, using the personalities, vocabulary, and experiences of the authors, supernaturally worked through them in such a way that what they wrote was exactly what God intended and thus carries divine authority. So using their personalities, their vocabularies, their experiences. That's why you can read certain books of the Bible and it sounds a little different than other books of the Bible. 
Or you'll read certain authors talking about, you know, Paul, for example, when I was with you, I did this and I said these things. And so he uses their experiences, he uses their vocabulary, he uses their personalities. And yet what they write is exactly what God wants written. Two verses that or passages that maybe give us some kind of sense of this is, is 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you've heard this before, that that word for carried along is used in the book of Acts to describe a ship being carried along by the waves. And in a sense, it's saying they were writing, but God was making sure that they did exactly what he wanted. Even as it was their words, it was God's words. Acts 4.25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? So who's speaking? Well, David's speaking. And who's speaking? God's speaking. God is speaking through David. Both are speaking at the same time, but they're speaking in such a way that what God wants to be said is exactly what is said. An illustration I've heard that, that's helpful for me, maybe helpful for you. Again, using the idea of breathed out. If I were to, to have a variety of musical instruments up here and I pick up a tuba, and I play Amazing Grace. Then I pick up a trombone, and I play Amazing Grace. And I pick up a clarinet, and I play Amazing Grace. I pick up a flute, and I play Amazing Grace. You'd say, wow, Ben, you are incredibly good at all these different instruments. That's not really the point of the, because I can't do that. But if I could do that, they would sound different, right? I'm playing the same song, but inevitably, the instrument itself affects the, the, the sound that's coming out. And so in a sense, God speaking through these different instruments, they, they may sound a little bit different. But where's the sound ultimately coming from? That's from me. The instrument isn't making the sound. It's just producing a certain sound in light of the air I'm putting through it. And so these authors are writing what they're writing as God is working through them to make sure that his message is being delivered. Now, why would we even care about this? Why does it matter whether or not the Bible comes from God? Well, because the Bible comes from God, certain truths bear out. And I just want to focus on three right now. That since Scripture is inspired by God, it is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. What do we mean by those three things? It is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. First, it is inerrant. And that it is true in everything it affirms and incapable of teaching falsehood. The reason I had it's, it's, it's phrased that way, true in everything it affirms, does the Bible contain things in it that are not true in themselves? The answer is yes. For example, Satan tells Adam and Eve, you shall not surely die. Is that true? That statement's not true. But did Satan say it? Yes. So what is the Bible affirming? The Bible's affirming Satan said it. I wasn't affirming that that statement is true. And so when the Bible actually affirms something to be true, it is true. And in fact, it is true because it is incapable of teaching falsehood because God is incapable of teaching falsehood. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Every word of God is flawless. 
John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Or Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. We talked about this as we looked at the attributes of God a couple of years ago. Sometimes we say, well, can God do anything? And the answer is, God can't lie. God can only do that which matches up with his character and nature. So God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie, which means whenever God speaks, it is the truth. And when we're saying it's the truth, it's important to understand we're not just saying it's true when it talks about things like theology. When it talks about doctrinal things, it's true. But perhaps when it deals with historical accounts, it might be off. Or if it gives scientific information, it may not be true. But when it gives us doctrinal statements, then it's true. You have actually people who make that kind of claim, but I would say that's not how inspiration works. The Bible is not necessarily a, a textbook about history or science. But whenever it does talk about history or science, what it says is true. And in fact, if it were wrong on those things, what confidence would we have that it's right on the other things? So we can't say, well, the Bible gets some things wrong, but we know we got it right over here. That's not how the Bible, that's not how God's word works. Anytime God's word affirms something, it is true. But I want to add two caveats. I don't know if caveats is the right word. <laughs> uh, two pieces of information that help us understand what we mean by that. The first is that the Bible doesn't necessarily always use technical or precise language. So we're talking about it's scientifically accurate. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's always using scientific language. Um, but that shouldn't bother us because we don't expect that in our day. If you open your weather app and you see the sun rises at this time and the sun sets at this time, you don't say, boy, this thing has no idea about science. The sun doesn't rise. The earth rotates. You don't look at that that way. You say, oh, I know exactly what that means. And so when the scripture talks about the sun rising and the sun setting, it's using phenomenal language. It's using the kind of language that any kind of person would use. Or occasionally you have someone who looks at scripture and it'll talk about when it gives dimensions for something. It says it's, it's so many, you know, this measurements across and so many measurements around and people come around and say, aha, that can't be true because the circumference we know is pi times the diameter, not the good kind of pi, but the mathematic pi. And we know if we add pi to this diameter, it doesn't give us that circumference. And so obviously it's not really accurate. But, but again, we aren't always expecting people to give that kind of precise language. If, if you can't, if, uh, I was asking one of our college students who's going back to school and they have an exam and I say, how long did you study for this test? They say three hours. I said, you liar. You didn't study for three hours. You studied for two hours, 52 minutes and 47 seconds. You'd say, yeah, three hours. It's perfectly acceptable to, to round off numbers like that. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. And so we shouldn't hold the Bible to a standard we don't hold anyone else to on these things. Secondly, it's important to understand, when we're talking about inspiration, we're only talking about the original manuscripts. That when David actually wrote the Psalms, when Moses actually wrote Genesis, when James actually wrote the book of James, and so could there have been errors from people who copied the scripture? Potentially. 
From time to time, they may have messed something up. Now, this isn't the time for us to work through this. We actually, a couple years ago, some of you may remember, we talked a little bit about how we know that the Bible has gotten down to us historically accurate, why the copies we have today are very reliable. Uh, but I can't get into that right now, other than to say there are times in which it's hard to know which copies actually write on these kinds of things. But again, that's not really coming at the issue of inspiration, because we're not saying any of these copies were inspired. None of these copies are without error. The original writings were without error. God never promised to make sure that people copied it perfectly. He did say that when they wrote it, it would be his words. So the Bible is inerrant because it comes from God. Secondly, uh, sorry, that was just in case you, in case that caused you any concern. Don't ever think, well, the translation I have isn't the same thing. Uh, if your translation is accurately reflecting what God wrote, we can say it is inerrant. It is infallible. It is authoritative. We don't need to necessarily put major qualifiers in it that way, as long as it's accurately reflecting what God originally said. Secondly, it is infallible. Because it comes from God, it is infallible, and that nothing that the Scripture claims will fail to be accomplished. It will not fail. It will not fall. Numbers 23, 19, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? If God says it, you can take it to the bank. You can, you can trust your life on what he has said. Because that will not fail. Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So because the Bible comes from God, it is without error. Because the Bible comes from God, it cannot fail. Because the Bible comes from God, it is authoritative. Because it provides the final word on any matter it addresses. Think about it this way. Uh, If you are someone who enjoys having debates or discussions or arguments, but like decent arguments, and you're saying, well, who gets the final word? The answer is the Bible always gets the final word. You say, well, this is what I think. Someone else says, well, this is what I think. Well, if God tells us what he thinks, it settles the matter. You say, well, this is an expert in their field. No one's more of an expert than God. If God speaks, that is the final word. And you can't appeal to any higher authority. You can only go to God There's no higher court to which you can appeal. It is the final authority. The grass weathers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Think about Jesus. As he's being tempted by Satan. Satan says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, well, no, that can't, I can't do that because God said this. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what he does every time, right? Because essentially, as soon as he says, this is what God says, the matter's settled. Satan could give anything else in opposition. He could give any other argument he wants to give. Jesus already said, it doesn't matter what you say. God said this. It is written. 
Jesus talking. The Pharisee says, you are in error. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you wouldn't be in error. Because it is the true authoritative word message. So inspiration matters because it makes the Bible something very special. It is the only book that has no errors, that never fails, and gives the final word on anything it addresses. Now, since the Bible is a unique book, we might think, well, does that mean we need a unique way to study the Bible? And in one sense, the answer to that is no. We don't need a unique way to study the Bible. That the scripture is clear enough in its central message to be understood by any person. Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. A child can pick up the scripture. It can see what God is saying. Because God's word is clear. There is no need for a mystical knowledge or an interpretive technique to unlock the treasures of the Bible. If someone comes along and says, I've cracked a code to help us to know what no one else has seen in Scripture before, you should immediately say, liar. Because there is no code. There's nothing that unlocks what Scripture says that people have not been able to see. Because it is right there in the words themselves. And Jesus consistently denigrates people for their failure to do this very thing. Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And he replied, can't you read? You've read this, right? What do you not get? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be not in his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they're not two anymore, but one. So what God joined together, let not man separate. You can understand this. It's right there in black and white. All you have to do is read it. Because the scripture employs language in a normal way. So the ordinary means of interpretation should be employed in determining the meaning of scripture. And so if you can read anything, you can read the Bible. Because it's just words. It's language. It's phrases and paragraphs. Now, yes, there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. And so you need to be aware of what kind of literature you're reading. In the same way that if you're reading the comics, you expect to interpret it a little bit differently than if you're reading a cookbook, or if you're reading the sports page, or if you're reading an editorial about a uh, judgment made from the Supreme Court. You expect there to be a certain level of expectation in light of what you're reading. That's true in the Bible, too. When you're reading poetry, you expect it to be a little different than if you're reading narrative. It's a little different than if you're reading one of Paul's letters or, or Peter's letters. But you're still employing language in normal, everyday ways. You use basic interpretation skills. Now, having said that, do we read the Bible in a way different from every other book? And the answer is, in part, no. But it's also, in part, yes. Why? Because the Bible is like no other book, because it alone has no errors. It alone never fails, and it alone is authoritative. Every other book you read, you can read critically. You can read saying, I'm not sure that's true. I think they got this wrong. I don't know if I'm going to believe that. 
We don't read the Bible that way. Because every other book is another human. This is what God has said. And so once we know what he said, we have to agree with him. We have to put ourselves under it. And so in that sense, we do read the Bible different from every other book. You say, well, Pastor Ben, I, if the Bible is so clear, then why do people disagree about what the Bible teaches? And there's probably more that could be said, but I want to just point out three reasons why that's the case. First, because some people aren't really trying to read the Bible. They're not trying to understand it in a normal way. They're going and they're trying to twist Scripture. They're looking for hidden meanings. They're trying to make it into what they want to believe. And so instead of coming and saying, I'm going to sit under what God says and form my beliefs in light of that, they come with their beliefs and say, how can I try to make the Bible agree with me? And if you do that, what's going to happen? Just if you have two people doing that, they're going to say, well, the Bible agrees with me. Because neither of them are really saying, I need to agree with the Bible. So this is one of the reasons why people disagree. They aren't really trying to get their thinking in line with what Scripture says. But secondly, to say that the Bible is clear in its central message doesn't mean that every single passage of Scripture is crystal clear. There are some passages that are hard to understand. In fact, Peter says that in 2 Peter. He says, you know, sometimes people read the Apostle Paul and there's things in Paul that's a little hard to understand. If you've ever read 2 Peter, you kind of chuckle to yourself because you say, Peter, look in the mirror. You are some things that are kind of hard to understand too. But in those things that are hard to understand, none of that changes what is easy to understand. The message of Scripture is easy to understand. And in its central truths, any person who comes and tries to say, what does God say about who he is and what he wants of us, they come to the same conclusion. Yes, there are some matters in which they disagree, in which scripture maybe is not as clear or certain passages are not as easy to understand. But they all understand the same message the same way. But then as well, in light of the fact that some passages are hard to understand, that we don't always have the capability of interpreting things rightly. Sometimes we come with our own agenda. Sometimes we're not very good at understanding how two parts of Scripture actually correlate with each other. And so, yeah, human error comes into the mix when we're interpreting Scripture. We eliminate so much human error when we start by saying, well, God's Word is the final authority. We've removed much of the human error out of the way. So if I say the Bible is clear in what it centrally teaches, what does the Bible teach? And let me say right up front, in some ways I'm oversimplifying this. Because if you're going to say what does the Bible teach in a short amount of time, there's no way not to oversimplify it. But I look to Ephesians in some way to, to kind of point to, I think, centrally what Scripture is about. And that is that God is uniting all things in Christ, in heaven and on earth. He's making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this is what we see when we come to the end of Revelation. Heaven and earth together. The dwelling place of God is now with man. God is ruling his people 
through a mediator, Jesus Christ. And everything is now right in the world. This is what scripture teaches. And because he's uniting all things in Christ, Christ is pretty central to that message, which is what he points out in Luke 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found that just as the woman had said, but they did not see, but him they did not see. These are the two uh, disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, Jesus doesn't say, well, obviously you couldn't have seen this. He says it was right there for you to see. The prophet said it. You should have believed it. But you struggled to believe it. And so what does he do? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and Moses and all the prophets is basically shorthand to say all the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Now, let me be clear and give a little warning. Sometimes this verse is used to say every verse in the Old Testament is really about Jesus. That's not what this says, right? He doesn't say he began to teach them himself and all the things in Scripture. He said all the things in Scripture concerning himself. And so there's a lot in the Old Testament about Jesus. Why? Because he's central to the message. That's what we see as well in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But the scriptures bear witness about me. Ultimately, they're pointing to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, since we have such a hope, we're very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so the Israelites might not gaze the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Testament, when they read Moses and the prophets, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. What's he saying? They're missing the central message. They're missing what God was really trying to tell them. But now, the Lord, that but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And they see. They see the central message. Well, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Where are they beholding it? Well, they're looking at the Old Testament. And what are they saying? the glory of Jesus Christ, because it is ultimately teaching them about him. And this central message about Christ is intended to reveal to us how we are to be united with him. God is intending to unite all things in Christ. How do we make sure we are rightly united to him? Well, he gave us his words that we would know that. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. So we are to humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Second Timothy 3, how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Because we cannot know God or Christ without the Bible. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the message. The message is heard through the word of Christ. We cannot grow as Christians without the Bible. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And when we look to scriptures, we find everything that we need in order to know and to serve God. This is what's sometimes called the sufficiency of scripture. It is sufficient because it speaks to everything. The Bible doesn't tell us everything. There's information 
that's not found in the Bible. But there's no truth out there that is not interpreted ultimately by what God has said in his word. What he said shapes our understanding of everything else in this world. It speaks to everything. And so if we want to know what should I think, what should I do, it's right here. This is where we find it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Lord, what should I think? What should I do? His word's a lamp. His word is a light. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises. So that through them you participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And this is, when we're saying the Bible alone is sufficient, it's related to what we talked about earlier, it alone is the truth, it alone is God's word. And so we can't put anything else on the same level as Scripture. Because when we do that, we're saying Scripture's not enough. We also need, in Roman Catholicism, we need the apocryphal books. And we need the teaching of the church and the teaching of certain popes in their papal statements. And we actually look at them in the same way we look at Scripture. Or we talked about Mormons tonight in Salt Lake City. Mormons would say, we believe the Bible is God's word. We believe the Book of Mormon is God's word. And we believe the Pearl of Great Price is God's word. The Doctrine of Covenants are God's word. And they're all on this level. When you talk to Muslims, and you say, do you believe the Bible is God's word? They say, well, part of it. The Pentateuch and the Gospels and the Psalms, they're God's word. But they've been corrupted, and so the... Uh, Quran is actually the final message of God. But inevitably, in all those religions, what's happening as they're saying, the Bible's not enough, we need something else to come along. That something else ends up coming up over the Bible. Because the Bible's without error, but these things aren't. And so what happens? They don't agree with each other. When they don't agree, what do these religions do? We're not going to follow the Bible. We're going to follow these things over here. Because the Bible is not the final authoritative, sufficient message for us. But Scripture is that. Only the Bible is sufficient and fully authoritative. And no other book, teaching, or idea can be viewed as its equal. The Bible provides God's people with all that is necessary for every good work. All Scriptures, God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If God wants you to do something in this world, you have what you need in his word. And so as we then study the Bible together, we have the opportunity to be better equipped to know and serve our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's your word, it's your message. Thank you that you communicated to us, that you cared enough to tell us who you are, who we are, what you want us to know, how you want us to serve you. Lord, what an incredible gift we have in your word. So I pray that we would value the opportunities we have to study it together here on Wednesday nights in this coming year. 
and that you would work through your word to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.